0: Well, Father, it's with anticipation that we take our Bibles now and and open them and with great joy receive from you the Word of God. Thank you, Father, that you are a God that is not silent and you are a God who has communicated. And thank you, Lord, for the record of history recorded in the Gospels for us this great time of year about the life and the ministry and the great meaning of our salvation found in these occurrences Here, this Palm Sunday in Easter season. So, Father, though we've gathered as a group of weak people, and I'm sure there's some here who are very defeated and discouraged. Others, Lord, are highly distracted. Perhaps some are struggling with uh, poor health, other great burdens. May we cast our cares upon you, Lord. May we come to Sit quietly before you, and just to receive the word from you, to be refreshed and renewed and encouraged, to strengthen ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, visit us as you often do, and and as you've promised to take your word and use it, and as the surgeon's scalpel, and and as the Holy Spirit comes alongside in in His ministry of opening our eyes to the truths found here in the Great Book. I just pray that we will go away from here changed, and resolute and determined to walk in obedience, empowered by your word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, living out our salvation to, before a watching and even wicked world, that we would be your servants, your disciples. So use this time, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever cry? What makes you cry? I know that this is a a dynamic that is highly influenced by personality. Some of you cry very easily. Others of you do not want to cry at all. Some of you can remember when you cried last. Maybe it wasn't so long ago. Others of you have to stop and think. I don't know if I can even remember the last time I cried. It's interesting that um, crying has kind of made the news lately. Guys like Brett Favre and Tom Brady, big NFL football quarterbacks, are known for their crying here lately. Maybe Favre's done crying now if he's retired for the last time. I'm not sure. Speaker of the House John Boehner is known for his crying on a regular basis. If I was Speaker of the House, I'd cry too. (laughs) Those guys are kind of famous for crying. And this morning, as I invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel in chapter 19, as we, this Palm Sunday, review this great story of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem, I want you to see from the passage in Luke's account that though the people are praising, Jesus is crying. Sometimes we miss that point of the story. We're going to include it, as Luke does, seamlessly into the passage. It's interesting that the account of the Palm Sunday as we know it, it's a great Sunday school story, isn't it? It's the day that our boys and girls bring home their green construction paper, palm leaves that they've cut out, and we've prayed, praised Jesus with hosannas. That when we look at the story that really it was a very grave hour, we're only days before Jesus goes to the cross. And though Jesus received this praise, it is interesting to note that some of the praise no doubt was disingenuous, and some of those who gave praise no doubt were included in the crowd that just a few short days later, the weekend coming from this passage, will scream with all of their might for Barabbas, the hated criminal, to be released, and Jesus, our king, to be crucified. In this passage, Luke is the only one who gives this account, that at this occurrence, because of this event, this event where he comes in on the colt, where he comes in to the praise of, no doubt, literally thousands of people. Remember, as we read this passage, that Jerusalem is a very crowded city. It is Passover week. It is the most important week of the year. It is a time of great sacrifice. Bible historians tell us that over a quarter of a million animals were slaughtered. That the population of Jerusalem would go up by the hundreds of thousands during this week. It was a very crowded place, greatly multiplied in its population. There were many people there. There's a reason Jesus came this week. We're going to look at that. You need to understand as we look at this story and break it down, and ultimately we get to the place where we want to understand why was it that our King Jesus cried that day? When everyone was intoxicated with praise, why did Jesus cry? It's a good question. This account is, interestingly enough, one of a few accounts that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's in Matthew chapter 21, it's in Luke chapter 19, it's in Mark 11, and John's Gospel chapter 12. Some people wonder, why is this account recorded multiple times? You will also notice, and I would encourage you to do this, this, we call it Passion Week, to take the time to find these sections in your gospel, usually it's the latter part of the gospel, and read this account of what happened. A lot of ministry goes on in the life of Jesus in this final week where he's going to the cross. And if you'll take time in your devotion this week or quiet time this week to read the separate accounts, you'll see that, that different nuance is brought out of the passage for example, you'll see from Matthew's account that the account that Luke is including as though it were right real time at the moment when Jesus looks at Jerusalem and the tears roll down his cheeks and he weeps for Jerusalem and cries, that that actually happened probably on Monday morning. If we read in the context of the passage, just so you can understand, it was on on the, the Saturday evening of the, pass, of the Sabbath that Jesus had come in and he had stayed in Bethany at his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You remember them? Lazarus, who not too long before this, John chapter 11 is where the record is, is given for us. Jesus had called him from his tomb. Remember his dear friend? That's where you have that little verse in, the, in John 11 that it says, and Jesus wept. That was at Lazarus' tomb, and he raised him from the dead. And we know that one of the reasons there is such enthusiasm and and momentum in the ministry of Christ as people gather at this point, we're right at the end of his three year earthly ministry. Jesus is heading to the cross. He knows it. They don't know it. It even tells us uh, in other passages that it wasn't until after it was all over that the disciples even understood what was going on here. They didn't even, the disciples themselves didn't even get it. And Jesus is heading to the cross. And everywhere he goes right now, he is at the pinnacle of his popularity. It says repeatedly that people are following him because they want to see more miracles. And in fact, people were following Lazarus around. He was kind of a a pop figure at this time. Well-known, common name, the guy that Jesus had raised from the dead. And people were following Jesus because they were hoping they'd get to see him raise somebody from the dead too. Wouldn't you? He had made the blind to see, he had healed the lame, and this thing with Lazarus had swept like wildfire. He was very popular, and people uh, very much were attributing to him this messianic uh, uh, concept in their thinking, However, also know this as we read our story, that as they welcome him into Jerusalem, they are very much inclined to think of him not so much as a spiritual Messiah, not so much the one who would deliver them from their sin, not so much the one who would take the burden of guilt away once and for all, but the one who would reclaim Jerusalem, the one who would put their political party back in power, the one who would take that awful taxation of Rome off their back and make things right and sit on a throne and take back their city and get get rid of Rome and surely somebody who could raise the dead and heal the blind and heal the sick could do that kind of thing and they were all for it and they were going to be a part of it and they're caught up in the enthusiasm of it. I was commenting earlier that sometimes people question, why is this account in all four of the Gospels? And for some of you that the Bible is kind of new to, it might be helpful for you to understand that that it's very valuable to have the Gospel accounts. Now, some of you come from churches where you've been under pastors who don't even believe the Bible is the Word of God. And there are people who are critical of the text of Scripture and people who, who say that it's not uh, inerrant, it's not all inspired of the Holy Spirit, that it's not all without error. And sometimes people will look at the, the different gospel accounts even, and they'll see, see, this guy says this, and this guy says this. Well, what is it? The Bible contradicts itself. It's not that way at all. It's the whole wrong angle to come at it. You might think of it like this. it's like um, It's like you're at a four-way stop intersection, and there's pedestrians on each corner, and all of a sudden there's been like a four-way crash right in the middle of the right in the middle of the intersection, and the police show up to to figure out what's going on, and they make their way around to the four corners where the pedestrians are, and at each corner, what do they get? They get a different story. Now, I know that it's possible at the human level for there to be contradictions of fact. But isn't it interesting how one person was looking at the red car and he says this is what happened and the other guy was looking at the old lady in the green car and the other one was looking at the young man in the blue car and the others look at this guy over here. That was not a slight about old ladies driving, by the way. And it just kind of came out. And, and so they're going around looking at it and they get a different angle. And so that's the value of the Gospels. When you read these accounts, you find that there's nuance and there's... There's different ways that that you get different parts of the story, and some go into more detail. Question, was Luke an eyewitness account of this day? Was Luke one of the disciples with Jesus that day? Could Luke have perhaps even been one that Jesus had said, go get that donkey and bring it to me? We love the story of the donkey, don't we? Interesting that that's included in all the gospel accounts, That essentially, and, and that the donkey, this thing about this donkey that he's rising in, we'll talk about that in a minute. The answer is no, Luke was not an eyewitness, remember? Luke was a historian. And so when we read Luke, Luke is out to give an orderly account to a friend of his named Theophilus, And he heard about Jesus and Luke the physician and a scientist and a historian, a detail guy. He goes around and he researches the facts and he writes what he called an orderly account of the ministry of Christ. And so, for example, if you read in Matthew's Gospel, there's all kinds of things that are included there that Jesus did in this account. If you read Luke's account, he he passes over some of those incidents, and he goes right to this, and in a seamless way, it appears, when you'll see when we read our text, that as Jesus came in, and this huge parade of praise is going on, that he's sitting there weeping at the same time, when actually, he had spent the night, Saturday night, with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, Then they had come into the city, and that's when he had sent them to get the little donkey colt and the mare and brought it in, riding on this colt. And then they had actually gone back to Bethany to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, no doubt. We don't know that for sure. And then the next morning, Monday morning, coming back into the city, that's when that interesting account, some of you will recall, when Jesus curses the fig tree. Remember that? It says that he was hungry. In his humanity, Jesus got hungry. And he was riding back into Jerusalem, and he reaches up to pick a fig off the tree. There's no figs, and he curses the fig tree, and it withers up right there because it didn't bear fruit. And it's uh, it's actually a message about the fact that The season of fruit-bearing is there. And if you don't produce, then it's over once and for all. That message is going to come out again in this passage. It's picturesque of, of Israel itself. They've had every opportunity. And now it's over. The season of fruitfulness is going to be over. And Jesus cries. So the donkey and the parade is Sunday and Monday morning in our timeline. Well, let's read about our king who cried He is crying in direct relationship, relationship though, to the event of Sunday. And remember that this is the week now, the final week. And by Friday, he'll be nailed to a cross. Luke's gospel in chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, Bethphage is just a little unknown town, And then Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as He went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when He came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting Psalm 118. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They sound almost like the angels in Luke 2, don't they? Peace on earth, goodwill to men, glory in the highest, glory to God in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They praised him with their voices. Verse 39, but some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words well let 's go back and break down this passage, shall we, and let 's understand a, a little much a little more insightful manner what 's going on here, and then let 's draw some application for our lives today i 'm going to give you eight two word phrases that help us. Break down and understand the passage. And the first one is that it was previously determined. Number one, you have to know that Jesus coming to Jerusalem was, number one, previously determined. It's interesting when we start, it says, And after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You need to just kind of stop right there and recognize that for uh, some days now, actually uh, for three years of his ministry in one way of thinking about it, Everything has been geared up to come to this week. We can take just a minute and and learn a little deeper about this. If you want to flip back to Luke chapter 9, we're all right here in Luke and it's helpful. There are several other uh, passages about this. In fact, in the account that we read on the screen this morning, did you catch how it started? It said, Jesus resolutely headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There's numerous comment, and there's a number of times when Jesus spoke that he had to go to Jerusalem. And this, he's been telling his disciples this, but they haven't gotten it yet, all right? So here it is in Luke chapter 9, and this is an interesting event. We call it the transfiguration. Do you remember that? Jesus was praying with, with uh, Peter, James, and John, and they were up on the mount praying, and this was uh, a time when uh, Jesus began to glow and, and just took on a, an, an amazing light, and he met with Moses and Elijah. We can just read a little bit about it. Look at verse, it's like a flash of lightning, the end of verse 29, in Luke 9, verse 29, and then verse 30. And two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And there's numerous other passages. Look at Luke 13, for example, so we don't have to turn far. Here's another one. Luke chapter 13, look at verses 31 to 35. Luke 13, 31 to 35. This is another occurrence where Jesus um, was sorrowful over Jerusalem and their rejection. 31, at that time, Luke thirteen thirty-one. at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And he replied, Jesus did, go tell that fox, Herod, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Who's in charge of the schedule here? the Pharisees, Herod, Roman soldiers, the disciples, or Jesus through the sovereign plan of God? Jesus is. And he says, in any case, verse 33, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. And that's where he goes on with those familiar words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who have been sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers his, her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. and Your house will be desolate. It mirrors a lot his comments on this day back in now in Luke chapter 19, back to our account. So one of the things you need to know, number one, is that this is a previously determined appointment. Previously determined It's not by coincidence that it all happened this week, that it happened during Passover. God's plan is unfolding, and it's His perfect timing. And this is the end of the three-year ministry window. The second thing we want to see in this story, number two, is power displayed. Power power displayed. This is the part about the donkey. We all get kind of wound up about this. This is our Sunday school story, right? It's about the little colt donkey and the mare and the neighborhood And Jesus is coming in, and then Jesus tells two of his disciples, you go get the donkey for me, and you bring it. It's going to be right there. Look what he says. He says, go, verse 30, to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. They went ahead, they found it exactly the way they did, And one of the things, because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are repeatedly told this story that I think we are to get from this, is clearly that this is Jesus, the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful. We use two words to represent that, omniscient and omnipotent. And he displays his power this day. I'm impressed with the fact that you can walk into town with a guy and he says, by the way, go to this neighborhood, there's going to be a cult there. And if they ask you about it, tell them Jesus needs it. It's never been ridden before, but they're going to throw their coats on this nervous young colt. Jesus is going to sit on it, and in front of a roaring crowd, he's going to walk calmly right down the middle of the street. That's pretty interesting. I doubt it was prearranged. Some skeptics say, oh, that was all prearranged. Jesus knew that guy. Jesus knew all about it. They had that colt ready for him. Listen, I think in his omniscience, Jesus knew right where they were. He knew who owned them. He knew what their response was going to be. He told his disciples what to say to their response. In his uh, omnipotence, he could ride an unbroken colt. In his position of authority as the one who spoke the worlds into existence, he had the right to just take something and not ask for it. But it's interesting in... The other accounts we see that they were, and when they heard that the master wanted it, they quickly gave in. Take him, take him. Power displayed. The third thing we see in this riding of the cult, and the reason this cult story, this donkey story, is included, is the most important part of it. And it is this nuance that it is number three, it is prophecy fulfilled. It is prophecy fulfilled. It doesn't say that directly in the Luke passage, but it does in the Matthew passage. Turn back to Matthew chapter 21, will you? Matthew's gospel in chapter 21. And, and let's look look what Matthew writes down here for us. He's talking about the same exact story about finding the donkey in verse 20 chapter 21, verse 2. There's going to be a donkey there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. What a great testimony about those guys. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. See that? This isn't just something that kind of happened. It happened by design. Many, many years before, Zechariah, and Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 is where this comes from. You don't have to turn there. He had recorded in a prophetic statement, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Back to Luke's gospel in chapter 19. One of the things that I was thinking about is how people who are skeptical of the word of God Ignore the reality of literally hundreds of fulfilled prophecy. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Is it just coincidence? It cannot be. How these things unfolded, where statements were made hundreds of years before, and exactly the way it was said, it happened. Prophecy fulfilled right before your very eyes. So if you were careful and you're in the crowd and you're a disciple and you were watching Jesus closely, yes, you're so overwhelmed and impressed with the raising of the dead and the sight given to the blind. But even in the nuance of the story, you have to marvel. You have to marvel at this power displayed and the prophecy fulfilled. The next part of the story, we see the people rejoiced. The people rejoiced, number four, This is an interesting thing. It's interesting to me to note that in the passage, in verse 37, it says, When they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So no doubt, in the crowd, many of the people were true followers of Christ. It says they were disciples who were truly rejoicing in who Christ was. At the same time, I think that this crowd gathered momentum and there were voices crying out, looking for this political takeover, looking for relief. Yes, I'll get on that. Yes, I'm all for hope and change. I'll praise Him, yes. And they don't know what they're saying and some of the people in the very crowd who are rejoicing come over here on Friday and are screaming for His crucifixion. Boy, the crowd is fickle, isn't it? You better watch who you hang out with. You better watch who you're with. Notice in the middle of all this, this praising, they're singing from Psalms and from Zechariah and, and so forth, singing their praise. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. In verse 39, number 5, we have Pharisees dismayed. The Pharisees were dismayed. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I think this is a great note. In verse 40, he says, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, well, I tell you, if they stop praising, then the stones will cry out. It's pretty neat, isn't it? All of creation sings his praise, doesn't it? It'd be kind of neat. I've been in some pretty remote places where there weren't any people around to praise the Lord. Fairly remote for me it was like 100 miles from anybody in any paved road. We kind of need to be all alone and listen and hear the rock's praise. Sometimes at night around here in the warm weather when the tree toads and the frogs and the crickets are going at it, I like to think they're, they're praising the Lord. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. I don't know, you know. But all of creation, you don't know what they're saying either. But He created them. Why wouldn't He create them to bring praise to Him? But it said, if, if we're silent... And the rocks would have to cry out because Jesus demands praise, doesn't he? It's why when you come in on Sunday morning, you throw your head back and you sing, whether you like to sing hymns or not. And the more you sing and the louder you get, the more you'll like to sing them. We sing praise to Jesus so that our chairs don't sing when we leave. Who knows? Do the chairs sing when you're not in here? Does it treat? No, we won't go there. So the people rejoiced, and the Pharisees were dismayed, and they wanted to kill Jesus, but he was too popular with the local people. They are shallow, hollow, religious people. Isn't it interesting how people love to hate Jesus? What is that all about? One of the reasons I think that the Pharisees were so dismayed is because they knew, and we'll see it at the end of the passage, where they wanted to kill him. They understood exactly what he was doing. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the passages. They could see that he was coming in a messianic way, and therefore he was saying, I am the one sent from God. I am the Savior of the world. I am the Messiah. They didn't believe it, so they hated it. It's crazy, isn't it? how people just can't stand Jesus. I think that one reason for that is is because Jesus has an exclusive gospel, doesn't he? I think what people don't like about Jesus is that when he comes to town and that when Jesus comes and confronts you with his message, he is the only way and the only truth and the only life and there is no other way to God and in our culture and in our mindset, we can't stand that kind of thing. And we love to say, well, I think that That's your problem, your thinking. Who cares what you think? God's word doesn't say that. And it's an exclusive gospel, and people don't like that. We have to all get along. We are all on the same road, just different ways to get there. That's utter nonsense, and it's heretical doctrine, and it's false. And all kinds of people with all kinds of mindsets will wake up One day, on the judgment day, and it will be too late to cry out to King Jesus because they thought that they had a better idea. The Pharisees thought, this isn't him. We got to shut this down. The Pharisees were dismayed. But notice verse 41, that Jesus is personally distressed. Jesus is personally distressed. As he approached Jerusalem, verse 41, and saw the city, he wept over it. In the Greek, the grammar brings out that it was a bursting into tears. It was evidently, as he looked and saw the city from this high point coming in, he was overwhelmed with the reality of the sadness of the fact that as a nation and as a city and as a people at large, The Messiah had been rejected. Yes, they sang yesterday afternoon at the parade, but this morning he was crying over the reality of the fact that he was rejected. And he knew that the window of time was closing. Look what he says. If you, even you, had known, only known on this day, what would bring you peace? What's this day? The parade day. The coming of Messiah. But now it is hidden from your eyes. There was a a spiritual closure from God on these people. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And it even gets worse. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. It's incredible, isn't it? They will not leave one stone on another going to tear and destroy and ruin you as a people and this place as a city. Do you know that that's exactly what happened? This is, for all practical purposes, 33 AD. Jesus is 33 years of age. Okay? In 70 AD, what is that? 27 more years? 37 more years. Right? Say yes, somebody. Help me out. (laughs) 37 more years. I I couldn't think for a minute. And 37 years later... The Roman general Titus is going to come in and he's going to do exactly what Jesus said. And in 70 AD, he lays siege in the month of April on the city of Jerusalem. He encircles it. They put up earthen works all the way around, in essence, building a big dirt fence all the way around so they could absolutely control the coming and going of Jerusalem. They starved him out. They went in, they burned him, they pillaged, they raped, they killed, they slaughtered. They dashed their heads against stones and they took their pry bars and they tore the whole place apart. And it was over. And this once proud, beautiful city, this center of the universe, you might say, is now destroyed and scattered, and essentially it stayed broken until 1947. And we'll talk about that later in another day. Why is Jesus distressed? Let's find out from number seven, the problem defined They will not leave one stone upon another. Look at verse 44. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There it is. Jesus is personally very distressed and weeping because He can see the future. He knows what's going to happen. And He knows that because they have rejected Him, God is rejecting them. And the problem defined is, that they had their opportunity, Jesus came to them and they spit on him and they crucified him and they let Barabbas go free. This city that he said earlier in Matthew's gospel where he said, the prophets came to you and you beat them and killed them and then I've come to you and you kill me, basically. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you let your eyes glance over to chapter 20, he tells a story to illustrate verse 44, where he says, you don't even recognize the time of God's coming, and as a result, you have rejected me. And in verse 9 of chapter 20, he tells a story of a landowner who owns a great piece of land, subs it out to farmers, he sends his servants there, to collect the lease and to check in on him, and they beat him up and send him home. He sends another servant. They beat him up and send him home. Finally, he says, what am I going to do? And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Instead of beating him up, they kill him. What's the landowner to do? And it's a picture of what Israel has done to the prophets and then ultimately to the father who sends his own son. And he says, here I am. And they kill him. They reject him. The Pharisees were dismayed. Jesus was personally distressed. We have the problem defined. The problem defined is the end of verse 44, as I've stated, that because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, all this will happen. Then he enters the temple area begins driving out those who were selling. What were they selling? It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. We won't take long for this, but you can understand this. The other, Matthew's Gospel account particularly gives much more detailed accounts. The second time in Jesus' ministry where he goes into the temple and he clears the tables of, remember the word money changers in Matthew's Gospel? Some of you can remember in the history of West Virginia when coal was really king and there were coal companies that basically built up entire towns that when you worked for that coal company, you lived in coal company housing and you got paid with coal company money. What did they do? They went in a back room and cranked out in a mimeograph machine, paper money, and that's what they paid you with. And so you had to go to the coal company store because that's the only store that would take coal company money. So you couldn't go up the street and spend it at Walmart because Walmart doesn't take whole company paper. And so they had you by the throat. You had to work for them because the only money you had was them and you owed a debt all the time. They kept you in debt and they paid you with their paper money. And the temple had become so corrupt by the religious leaders of the day and the priests were so corrupt that this is what they had done. Remember I said that at Passover time a quarter of a million animals were slaughtered? Well, here's what you do. People come in from all over the countryside to give their sacrifices, and the priests have to approve the animal, and they say, "Uh uh-oh, it's got a little cutty right there. It's not good. You've got to go over here and get a new one. But you can't just go over and buy one from the guys that are lining the temple courtyard where you can buy your sacrificial animals at a highly inflated price. You couldn't just bring one from home. They changed the rules. But then you go over there to buy it, and they only take... Coal company dollars. They only take temple dollars. They had made up a currency that could only be spent in the courtyard so then you had to go across to this table to the money changer and turn in your real dollars for temple dollars so that you could go back over here and buy an animal for your sacrifice and carry out the Passover feast and so forth and sacrifice. You see how they got it? So then what they're doing is they don't give you a dollar value worth. They, they inflate everything and they, got, they were getting rich and all the priests were getting a cut of it. And Jesus walks in there and wouldn't you have loved to seen that? And knocks that place apart and scatters them like a fox in the hen house. He says, my house would be a den of thieves. Surprise, surprise. People use religion for personal gain. It's terrible, isn't it? And then it says, finally... verse 48, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people, excuse me, verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. They were so worried about the population that they couldn't figure it out, but it only takes them about five more days and with a sleazy, cowardly, demonically possessed Judas. They pull it off, don't they? Well, there's the story, there's the people praising and there's the weeping king. Let's wrap up with just a couple lessons and we'll go home. The first lesson that I think we can get out of this passage today that makes application to our lives is this. I think that it is, number one, a wake-up call to people who are spiritually unstable. It is a wake-up call to people who are spiritually unstable. What do I mean by that? Let's go to the crowds lining the way. It says that some of them were true disciples, but no doubt that the crowds had swelled with people, as we've referenced, who later in the week will scream for his death. Listen, if you are not building into your life, biblical conviction, and you don't know what you believe, you will be gullible to believe anything. You will follow the crowd. And if you look like the world and you act like the world and you think like the world, you are of the world. And you are not a follower of Jesus. And these are people who on one day praise Jesus and on the next day curse Jesus. James said, these things should not be. There is no way that out of the same fountain salt water and fresh water should come. There is no way that, that two kinds of fruit should grow on the same kind of tree. Well, what do we do? We come in here and praise Jesus, wonderful, merciful Savior. Oh man, I just love Jesus and I really love him. And, and man, if only, you know, we just love Jesus in all kinds of songs and we didn't. And then tomorrow, what do we do? Out of the same mouth comes cursing? Out of the same mouth comes the trash of the world. In the heart comes not a heart full of love for Jesus, but a heart full of love for the world. We're just like the crowd. Wherever we are, that's what we are. We follow it around. We're not men and women of spiritual conviction. We're not true disciples of Jesus. And examine your heart and not be like the crowd. Secondly, I think we get out of this. Not only is it a wake-up call to people who are spiritually unstable. Yes, I want to follow Jesus, but I, I get distracted during the week. Number two, it is a word to people who are materially unavailable. It is a word to people who are materially unavailable. This is the part of the story about the donkey again. I just love that. I love it that those guys are out on their porch and they hear the gate rattle and they look over and these two guys come walking in and they start untying their their mare and their colt. Hey, hey, what are you doing? Hey, get away from, hey, that's my donkey, man, leave it. Just get down there and teach him a lesson or two. Leave my stuff alone. What are you doing? Oh, the master needs it. Oh, okay, no problem. Don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to be where I live in such a way that I am not building a kingdom to myself I, I am not collecting so that I have a bunch of junk to pass on to my kids that I am living in such a way that what the mas- whatever the master needs, he can have. I love those guys. Hey, the master needs it. Take it. Do you know how valuable in that era a mare and a colt are? I try to live this way. I haven't quite conquered it. I'm down to a couple of things. I say regularly, anything I have, you can have, except my 270 and my wife. And I tell you, I'm working on my 270. All right? That's that's my dear rifle. You can't have my wife. I'll fight for her. You'll get the 270, you mess with my wife. All right? Do you live like that? Do you live with, with an availability to the master? What does he need? And you say, well... Pastor Van, God can't need anything I know, but God regularly uses, look at that, I got a dollar (laughs) in my pocket. Regularly uses people to accomplish his ends, doesn't he? Right? The master needs it. The master needs it. It's his. It's yours, Lord. It's yours. Thirdly, and most importantly, as we conclude, this is a warning to people to whom Jesus is unacceptable. This is a warning to people to whom Jesus personally is unacceptable. What do I mean by that? This is the lesson when Jesus looks down and the tears begin to flow and he said, I came to you, the prophets came to you, you killed them, I've come to you and you rejoice but you don't even get it and you're going to kill me too. And Jesus comes and they had a window of opportunity and the the Inference, it's more than inference in the passage. It directly in the passage says it will now be hidden from your eyes. How often has Jesus come to you, those of you that Jesus isn't quite acceptable to you yet? Jesus is an interruption to your life. Jesus is kind of a pain to you. And he has come to you and you know that you're a sinner and you know that you're not a new creation in Christ and Jesus comes to you and you reject him and you reject him and I want to tell you something, you are, you are living dangerously. And some of you might think, well, I, I'm going to get right with God and I'm going to do this, but I got this stuff over here and I got to do this. Listen, you never know. You never know when it's over it's over and it it's a serious thing to harden your heart against god the bible clearly teaches that there comes a time when he sometimes will even harden your heart back it's like it's it's like it's over you say well as long as i'm alive i have a chance in his grace right yes indeed you do but i'm telling you that as jesus looked at jerusalem and he says it's over it's over You had your chance and it's over that there will come a day if you do not consider today the day of salvation and you keep putting it off and you harden your heart that there can very well be a day in your life when it is over and there's no longer a chance and you stand before Jesus one day and he looks at you and he said, I don't know you. You're not in my book. In fact, I came to you many times and you refused me. Depart from me. And then what good is all your good times going to do you? What good? What good? And so there's a lesson, a warning to the people to whom Jesus is personally unacceptable today. And if Jesus is tugging at your heart and and there's a guilt for your sin and an opportunity for release and a chance to become a new creation in Christ then that's what this week is all about and that's what Calvary is all about and that's why we go to the cross and that's why it has such meaning to believers because when we go to the cross, that's the place where we can lay down our burden of our sin and Calvary covers it all and there at the cross, Jesus takes my place as the substitute lamb for my sin and this burden of sin can be put down, and his righteousness can become mine, and I can have relief from all of the baggage and all of the dirty, rotten sinfulness. And let me tell you that Jesus is not out to ruin your good times, okay? Stop hardening your heart. Receive him while you have opportunity as he tugs at your heart. As you see and hear the gospel, before your very eyes. Could it be that in a spiritual manner, but, but in likewise a, as clear of a manner, that Jesus is as real today as if he rode into town on a donkey? And you say, I don't want anything to do with him. And Jesus cries and he says, it's over. One day it will be over. Today you have time. Don't squander the opportunity Israel squandered the opportunity, and in seventy A.D., it was their children's heads were dashed on the stones. That's why Jesus cried. Come to Calvary today, my friend. Let's bow in prayer. Before I pray, will you look into your own heart today? And is Jesus knocking on your heart's door? Have you've been confronting the reality of who Jesus is in your life, and you've been putting Him off. And you've been playing games and you're a crowd pleaser and you can just go with the flow. Maybe you're one of the people Jesus is weeping about today. If the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart, why don't you confess your sinfulness before God today? And recognize that Jesus went to the cross as your substitute, carrying your burden and your guilt and your sinfulness And that today, by faith, you can receive his forgiveness and once for all have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to teach you how to live and put your life back together. Live in obedience to the word of God and come under the umbrella of the blessing of his church and his people and his family. Have guilt removed and heaven promised. How about it? Is Jesus knocking on your door today or is he unacceptable to you like so many in the story? It's up to you. Acknowledge your sinfulness. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Confess him as your Savior, your Lord. And so, Father, lead us to Calvary and show us our own sinfulness and help us to be more than just a yelling crowd caught up in the excitement Father, teach us who we are and show us who Jesus is. As you're calling people to yourself, Lord, give them responsive, receptive hearts and willingness to surrender to you. We commit ourselves to you. May you continue to teach us and grow us through the understanding of what it means to be in Christ and what these great events in history meant recorded so precisely in our Bibles. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.